jazz. <laughs> All right, here we are. Welcome to Jazz Master Podcast 164. I'm Pat. I'm Mike. And uh, we're going to be hitting them skins. This is an all-drummer podcast, all-drummer-led dates. So, Mike, I think you picked up one or two of these from that sale. Uh, that thing. sale, my big, my big. Uh, it's the only good thing that came out of yet another Patriots Super Bowl win. I, oh, that's it, it right. Would, it would yeah. be very. It would bore everyone to go into. Let's just say I won some CDs, and two of them are things we're looking at today. Uh, they're just on a huge want list that I have on this music trading website, and I even forgot about. I've forgotten both of them were on the list, and and they both they both showed up. One is uh, Charlie Watts' 1996 recording, Long Ago and Far Away. Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones. And then the other is Philly Joe Jones. Showcase, one of his leader dates from the 50s. Uh, this was recorded in 59 for Riverside, for whom he was basically like the session drummer. Like everyone wanted to work with him. So maybe they decided it was time to give the drummer something. There you go. And then the other two, a Pete LaRocca, Basra from 1965, a Blue Note joint. Not as well known as it might be, but one of the minor classics of that label. And then we did a brand new release from Jonathan Barber called Vision Ahead from 2018. Yeah. Do you have any preference as to how we should do these? What order? I th- let's go in reverse order. Okay. Begin with Jonathan. I, yeah. Does that sound all right to you? That's cool with me. I don't know much about this guy. He's uh, obviously a percussionist, a drummer. And on this date, Tabor Gabble. And uh, Tabor, I apologize if I got your first name wrong. Plays piano. Andrew Renfro, guitar. Godwin Lewis on saxophone. Matt Dwan. You want me to give it a shot? <laughs> so okay. I'm going to guess that, that that's Dwan Sizik or Dwan Sik. There we go. Bass. Yeah, he's, he's obviously Irish. And Denise <laughs> Renee on vocals and Sasha Foster on vocals. So, yeah, this is a, the most obviously recent album and the one that's playing with, I don't know, kind of futuristic motifs. The one that's got a little yeah. modernism in his soul. Talk a little bit about what you thought about Vision Ahead. Yeah, sure. So this is this is one of the promos we get from time to time. And, and uh, so I think this was released last year and it was kind of in the hopper. And the, the story, as far as I, you know, there haven't been I haven't seen any reviews of this. And Jonathan Barber's website gives some details and the folks who we sometimes get promos from give some details about this. It seems as if it was produced in response to uh, the death of a family member. I believe I believe I may be wrong. Uh, a brother and uh, that part of the purpose or part of you know the album was inspired as a kind of homage or form of grieving whatever um it's connected to that or that that experience seems to have been important and you can hear that in some of the vocals on some of the songs and even some of the, the titles will kind of 
will tell you that it that it has that dimension to it. When I listen to this, I have to tell you that it's a, sort of a tale of two CDs for me because I often will listen to things on my uh, phone, which doubles as my portable audio listening device. And of necessity, I use earbuds. And this sounds terrible on earbuds. Oh, or okay. let's just say it doesn't sound that good on earbuds. And it really requires speakers or the big boy headphones. On earbuds, it turns into a kind of electronic processed wash and you lose a lot of the nuance. And my initial reaction, you know, because I listened to it in that format, I was like, man, what was I thinking? And then I upped it to the speakers and then the, the big boy headphones. And that made all the difference. I, I My reaction in general is positive. It's not a rave, but it's much improved over just hearing it on earbuds. So this has got a lot of keyboard wash, a lot of electronic processing. Everything seems to be recorded with a great deal of reverb. which is kind of uh, striking, you know, if you've got this in a, in a playlist mixed in with, you know, Philly Joe Jones, because you're kind of like, whoa, what happened? It's very, <laughs> the contrast is jarring. Normally on albums like this, I tend to, and you, you tend to be this way as well, not real fond of the vocals and not real, not real impressed or interested in them. And I got to tell you, a, a couple of the songs here with vocals turned into earworms for me. So Airport, which is a song by someone else, it's by a, a pianist in a trio that Barber is, I think, toured with and, and knows. He wrote the words Barber did, and that's him singing on that song. Now's the time to fly high. Give your all, waste no time. Faith and dreams are your eyes. Don't be blind, free your mind. I swear to God, I can't get that thing out of my head. Hmm. It's got this sort of bouncy melody and it's played, you know, with piano and, and, and these sort of synth or keyboard washes and, and the guitar kind of chiming and echoing over it. And, and it's, it's just about travel and, and I presume the life of a working musician in a sense. I can't, I can't get that damn melody out of my head. It is like burrowed into my brain. I kind of want to make it into my cell phone ringtone almost, mm. you know? It's weird. I, I, I find myself kind of liking it, which when I first heard, I was like, what the hell? And then it kind of, it kind of grew on me. Do you remember that Seinfeld episode where George Costanza goes around saying his name Costanza? or whatever, and, and it grows on people. People start doing it. You know? That's how I felt about this song. It just kind of got in my ear that way. And the other one that worked this way is another song, uh, presumably about um, grieving. It's very late on the album. It's uh, Time Will Tell. There's 
vocals here again and and it's about being reunited with another in a in a place beyond suffering and so forth um this one has a lot of uh, uh, electronic processing of the sound but i kind of like it because it's very funky it has a kind of up-tempo funky beat to it and i i kind of enjoy that None of the song, none of the other songs. I didn't dislike any of the songs, but there was a kind of a samey feel to them, and I have a hard time, or had a harder time, telling a lot of them apart on just five, six listens. Maybe more listens would have worked a little bit better for me. There are some moments on individual songs that I like. I, I like this guitar player quite a bit, Andrew Renfro. I think he does some pretty cool stuff. He's heard like, some Kurt Rosenwinkel, don't you think? I mean, yeah, he not, does. Not being super critical, just but that's a little reminiscent, you know, that style. And of course, he's a hugely influential player, Kurt, so makes sense. Yeah, um, and I, I like him in particular on a couple of the numbers. Uh, Vision Ahead, I like the guitar on that one quite a bit. There's also a, a, a reasonably uh, long solo on Doubt, the third Third number on the album so those are pretty good i also like some of the uh, piano player solos Tabor. i'm gonna guess his last name is pronounced gable uh, he has a very lengthy solo to more or less open doubt uh, which i thought was pretty cool and there's a couple of other places where where he solos that I, I enjoyed his playing. Sometimes, though, I lost him in... I don't know who's doing the synth work or the keyboard washes because they're, they're simultaneous. And they must. If he's doing both, obviously he's multi-tracked. And, and I couldn't find any information on how that worked. And in some of that electronic processing, I lost him in the mix a little bit. Mm, and yeah. and uh, I kind of missed that. A song like The Covenant really seems to have a lot of that in it after a pretty nice piano opening to that song. You know, the, the sound processing that goes on here sometimes washes out for my ears, some of the players. And it, it seems clear this set of five guys enjoy some, there's some patico, there's some, there's some synergy here. They all seem to be engaged in the same kind of project. It's not like anyone's pulling in a different direction. So sometimes losing one of the players in some of the, the electronic processing got a little vexing as far as the the drummer goes the leader and most of these songs are his uh, i think eight or nine of the 12 songs are, are are by him and i guess three of the members of the band studied with him at the jackie mclean institute mm, did you okay. know did you know there was a jackie mclean institute i go there every day man okay. <laughs> or it may not be called institute but it's I think it's at the Hartford School of Music. Anyway, I, I, I'm, I shouldn't even say these things until so I have push your mouthpiece in. No, push it in further. Keep pushing <laughs> it in. Okay. Right down. Right down. Um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, for a, a, a drummer-led date, he does not. And this, we, this happens sometimes on drummer-led dates because we've talked about these before. And it's not like he said how they sometimes say give the drummer something. You know, it's when a drummer-led right. on a drummer-led right. date, it's like give the drummer everything. Um, yeah. <laughs> This is definitely, you know, he may be the leader, but this is like a, a collection of, of equals, more or less. He has some fine moments here. I, I really kind of like the, the solo that opens the closing number, which really is just kind of a two-minute coda or so.
has a lengthy solo on that song called Believing in the Reunion, which I find kind of compelling. On any of the numbers where they go a little more rock beat, um, Carry On kind of slips into a kind of rock funk feel. I always like it. Uh, I always like his playing there as well. So, you know, I think he's a pretty, pretty good player, but it's not one of these dates where it's like, drummer to the front this is a a collaboration between him and and uh, the people he's working with and it's one has the sense that all his dates you know with this group are going to be kind of like this in the sense that it's not gonna it's not it's not a drummer feature it's it's a group and i take it you know that's the point the name of the band is vision ahead so you know it's not buddy rich is not his co-pilot right no he's not and for the better i think that's a good thing (laughs) So, yeah, I think the actual name of the band is uh, Jonathan Barber Vision Ahead, not the Jonathan Barber Quintet. So, okay. Um, so, yeah, I thought this was I thought this was pretty good. I have a feeling these guys would be awesome to see live. Mm, I, okay. I would like I would like this. I would like to hear them without the process and without the reverb. I'd like to hear what what they do uh, in a live setting, just purely acoustic. I think that would be rewarding you can you can do that stuff live though that's the thing the pat metheny group you know? i know i know yeah so i mean i don't know right. if that's what they play live like i'm making this assumption and i may be wrong about that so anyway i thought it was i thought it was pretty good it's all motorhead covers live it's it's a really a jekyll and hyde kind of band yeah yeah so i thought it was pretty good i didn't think it was great but it was enjoyable and um you know strangely a couple of these vocal numbers just burned their way into my brain whether i wanted them to or not and i think initially i didn't want them to but by the end i was like okay i kind of like this song when it comes on so this grew on me uh, a little bit how did you feel about it i you know it's right in the middle Uh, of these albums it was the smoothest ride and probably the one that grabbed my attention the least which is not to say it wasn't good just that it's it's not an album full of surprises in a way i it's weird. I don't want a drummer to dominate the session, but as you say, all the processing kind of takes away some of the excitement of, you know, a well-recorded drummer who you feel like there is some kind of visceral impact when the skins get hit. I mean, that's not what this album's about. It's not what it's trying for. You know, the vocals, I think, were they were not horribly misbegotten. Keep that thought in mind, people. It may return. <laughs> oh, no. This is a little uh, foreshadowing, my friend. <laughs> But, um, <laughs> oh my God, yeah, I was in the fetal position for a while uh, pr- preparing for the show. You know, they're, they're pleasant. I, I, the lyrics, again, I think all the well-meaning in the world, I, the messages, I'm 100% behind. I, I don't know that the verbal artistry did much for me. I don't know that I'm, I, I'm getting older and crankier every minute, as, as I suppose all of us are who aren't just better people than I am. And, and it, it, you know, I kind of want, if you're going to use language, I want you to use it well. And it was used adequately. It was fine. But but there aren't turns of phrase. There aren't searing insights. There aren't moments where I kind of stood up and said, oh, that was an interesting way to put that. There was a lot of earnest expression. And, you know, I that's not a bad thing. It just doesn't light my fire. I'm not saying this is, again, I'm not trying to, like, say that the messages here or the thoughts here are not valid or not healthy. I mean, it's just they aren't particularly compelling for me. And of course, I didn't just recently lose a brother and maybe they would have touched me in a way if I was in that particular emotional space. I don't know. But yeah, it's, it's I think, consistent throughout. It's well done. 
Uh, I think he's got a decent, though not overwhelming, gift for melody. I, I don't know that anything quite stuck with me, but at the same time, it was not bland and undifferentiated. But yeah, I, I just didn't find myself, after listening to it, I certainly wasn't upset by it. I didn't think it was bad. I didn't think it was a waste of my time. I found it very pleasant. But at the same time, it wasn't something that lingered with me very much when it was done. So I, I, I would like to hear live or in any context with less treatment. But at the same time, I've got to admit that there is a purpose for this kind of music that some people actually are bothered by, distracted by, displeased by uh, the sound of, you know, more direct audio verite. They don't like, they don't want to hear fingers on strings or the impact of a stick hitting a, a drum head too viscerally, too, you know, they don't want the transients kind of perking up their ears. They want something that's a little smoother. And, you know, this delivers. And I, I don't want to, I'm not saying this is smooth jazz. I mean, there's content here, but, you know, it, it is meant to be orally pleasing and orally soothing rather than uh, stimulating or surprising. And, you know, everybody's got, there's some things are too surprising for me, a little too stimulating. So, you know, everybody's got their, their happy place with that kind of thing, but I would have been happier with a little more umph, I guess. But yeah, very solid album. I'd love to hear him in a different context. I don't, I don't know what he'd be like as a side person, for instance. I, you know, I don't know whether, you know, he'd be freer or more constrained or what I, I just don't know and i would say you know if you're into that kind of i'd say middle period Winkle sound again this is not some kind of blatant imitation but it's of that school i'd say harmonically as well as constructing the solos but that's my thought about mr barber glad we took a look at something new i'm hoping a, an episode or two from now we'll go back to doing another all new one even in the back of my mind thinking about maybe trying to get another guest it's been a while cool we're not giving up on the on the new stuff i promise all right, who's next? So that would have to be Charlie Watts. Long ago and far away, I dreamed a dream one day, and now that dream is here beside me. Take it from your moaning about vocals, since neither of the other two albums have vocals, you have issues I, I, you know, with Charlie Watts. <laughs> the thing with cultural cliches is you, you don't want to, you know, I, English people are known for, some, some Englishmen are known for having sadomasochistic tendencies. Maybe more than the average in a given country. I don't know. I'm not, obviously not everybody. And this to me is like, this whole album is like, Charlie Watts has got this thing for suffering. I mean, he's like, okay, I'm a drummer and I've never been known for being, you know, a really extrovert. I'm just a really, really good drummer. I want you to put me in a context where all I go is tinka, tinka, tink. And you really can't hear what I'm doing. <laughs> and I, could you ladle? It doesn't hurt enough yet. You ladle some syrupy strings over it. Okay. Now make sure the song selection is so blatantly obvious that, that not a single nerve will be twinged. And now find a vocalist who's perfectly competent, but doesn't quite seem like he knows what the content of the song is emotionally supposed to be. And just, just plaster him all over this thing. <laughs> if I could be choking myself while we're doing this the whole time, that'd be great too. So he probably, someone was like, you know, not enough to pass out, just enough to give it a little extra oomph. Yeah. I, I found this album a, a nightmare. A living hell. <laughs> it was it was it was it as bad as a Michael Barabay album for you? 
Bar- you mean a uh, buble? Uble, a bear, why did I say Barabay? Oh my I god! I don't know. It's like I'm a still, he's, a, he's, a liter- he's a literary yeah. scholar. I'm still in that place. I'm sorry. Oh, anyway, okay, yeah. I was thinking, I meant- you know, Michael Bublé fucks, you know, Barbar the elephant, and the yeah. result is this elephant <laughs> singer hybrid. I was at this conference. I just have literary names in my head. Uh, oh my god! I was thinking was half wrong. elephant, half man, all Canadian. Yeah, I know. Uh, Bublé. Did it hurt as much as Bublé? You know, in a way, I'd say that in that. Buble is trying to imitate Sinatra. This is trying to imitate the kind of music that Sinatra said belonged in an elevator. I, it's not. It doesn't have as much. It's not attempting at personality the way Buble was. I, you know, this guy who the name did not ring any bells, but I looked it up. So uh, the personnel here: Charlie Watts, drums, and uh, Existential Despair. <laughs> Gerard Presenser, I don't know, uh, trumpet. David Green bass, Peter King alto sax, Brian Lemon piano, Louis Jardim percussion. Uh, there's obviously string section or synths or something like that. And then Bernard Fowler on vocals. And Bernard has an interesting history. He was in he the Peach Boys, two E's. I have a track of theirs. He appeared once on Songs from Liquid Days, an album I hadn't listened to since the 80s. I dug out. And apparently he also does backing vocals on James Blood Ulmer's America, Do You Remember the Love? A bit of a wet firecracker from Mr. Ulmer, not nearly as good as Are You Glad to Be in America? So, wow. And of course, he sings back up for the Rolling Stones. He's been in their entourage apparently for many, many years. And he really, this is his record. I mean, he sings every single he fucking is, song. It is his record. It absolutely is his and record. And he can Just have kind of... it. I don't, I didn't want to take it from Mr. Fowler. You can have it back, Bernie. I don't. The, the, the oh. strings, by the way, are the London Metropolitan Orchestra. Sure um, they are. And yeah, of uh, course. why not? Just so you realize this isn't a one-off, I believe Watts has recorded at least three of these jazz joints with Fowler as his vocalist. Oh although I don't know God. if he features on the others as, you know, I don't know if the others are all vocal songs. Because I'm going to go on a limb and say that he is the best deaf drummer in rock and roll history right now. <laughs> I never knew that about Charlie Watts. What a, it's amazing. How does he do that? Uh, anyway, all right. I'm going to stop. Yeah. So this is his quintet with strings yeah. and Bernard Fowler, basically. Um, and so in case anyone under a stone or a rock doesn't know, Charlie Watts is the, the quietest and the most tasteful, probably the most intelligent of uh, the Rolling Stones, uh, if only because he's abused himself less with drugs than all of the other members. Well, apparently he had his rounds with he that, had, too. But, but, he, yeah. he had his round, it's true. He's no Keith, but yeah. Yeah, well, apparently, <laughs> I was reading, reading a Rolling Stone article about him, and, and he, you know, they asked him about, you know, his, his he thought it was part of his midlife crisis, and he said, I knew it was bad when I passed out in the studio and Keith woke me up. <laughs> oh God, no! That's the worst. <laughs> it's like, and 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 you know, typical of him. He said, you know, what was so bad about it was the blatant lack of professionalism. Because he pointed out the Stones have often been in studio in less than compost mentis, but to pass out behind the kid. That is literally like the corpse asking the coroner if he feels okay. That's yeah. right. I mean, it's just, you, you don't want Keith waking you up. That's that's a bad sign. Yeah, and, and, uh, he, and apparently went cold turkey after that or whatever. He is, uh, of the Stones, I guess the one who's been married to the same woman, one woman, his entire adult life. Uh, so. Okay, good for him. 
And uh, there's one other Wikipedia anecdote one must relate because it sounds like we need to rehabilitate Mr. Watts' reputation ever so slightly. He is the best dressed, famously, of the group. And uh, there was some, uh, Wikipedia has the following anecdote about how Mick, in a drunken rave mode, called up and, you know, in a hotel room somewhere and wanted to know where my fucking drummer was. And so Watts apparently got up because he was asleep, of course. (laughs) He got up, shaved, dressed, went downstairs to Mick Jagger's room, knocked on the door. And when Jagger opened the door, he punched him in the face, knocking to the floor and says, I'm not your fucking drummer, mate. You're my fucking singer. Ah, good for you, Charlie. That's hilarious. That's a great story. I mean, I, I like the Stones. I mean, it, the Stones are their best. And I, of course, Watts is a fantastic drummer, a fantastic yes. rock drummer. I really didn't, and I could only listen to this album once. I it was like, okay, I made it through, and that's not going back in the rotation again. Which is a weird thing. I mean, I think more so than almost any wow category of of musician or performer. For me, jazz singers, there is this boundary, and and on the wrong side of it. And again, this is entirely subjective and personal. It, it, it's not. It, it's like it's an off and on switch. It's like no. It's like, no, that's not something I'm going to do. And it's not, again, that this guy can't sing, that he's off key. I, I just cannot stand the way he sings these hoary old standards. And I just could not listen to that record more than once. But it's, again, it's it's so subjective. And somebody who did a slightly different job of the same material, I still wouldn't like the setting. I still would, you know, but it would be fine. I, I, I get through it. So, I, and I can't, again, defend that. I just don't like the way the man sings. In this context, I, I will uh, I will mention a couple of other things, and I will make a mild mild defense. And again, I okay. can't remember how this ended up on a want list <laughs> for me. It should be on a want list. Any wanted list? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how it ended up there. But so Watts, they asked him about the selection of the songs here, and he said, "These are songs my mother used to sing to me as a kid." Okay. So he's he's. That's and he says that's the the point of the title that you know this reminds him of right you know, it is a sentimental playlist right. in a way yeah yeah and and so I, I get that and that's fine the only thing I, I think the only defense one can make for this project is first of all Charlie Watts has more money than God so he doesn't need for this to succeed of course it comes out on the Virgin label which is Stone's label he's using Stone's juice to get this out there and if and if it gets anyone to actually listen to a little jazz and maybe pulls in a listener from another place, then it's served its purpose. He certainly can afford, uh, and he's earned the right with his money and fame. He can afford to do a vanity project. And this is someone who actually adores jazz and he, he's knowledgeable. He knows something about it. It's not like there are, there are other versions of projects like this that are not so knowledgeable, right? Rod Stewart, you can think of other examples. Well, you know, Hugh Laurie put out an album. I haven't heard it. It may be great. Who's right. the tall? Jeff Goldblum has put out. You know, so it, it's 
people from various facets of the entertainment industry who like the music. I don't, I don't think they're pretending to like right. jazz. Uh, you yeah, know, yeah. we'll do it because they've got the juice. Sure. There's nothing I can do about it. Loving may be all you can give, but honey, I can't live without it. Oh, how I'd cry. Oh, how I'd cry. From what I've read, he actually, um, the, the quintet itself is actually pretty good, although you can't really hear them here. Um, no. The quintet is supposed to be pretty good. Uh, by all accounts, and and Watts, he's not a parvenu. He actually Charlie Parker's his hero, and and he loves this stuff. I don't know about Laurie, but I I read somewhere that Jeff Goldblum is like a trained pianist, so he's 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 legit. Anyway, you know this isn't someone who's looking to broaden their um, demographic, or you know this is a Valentine to music that he loves, and he can afford to make it with people who he works with. And like I said, if it pulls in more listeners, great. It's not exactly, it's not like, you know, if Virgin does this, they're not going to record Jonathan Barber. Virgin isn't going to record Jonathan Barber. So oh, sure. Yeah, he's not taking someone else, some other right. jazzbo slot in this major label. No, of course not. Yeah. And with his, with his cultural cachet and with his juice, who knows? Maybe he draws some attention to, from his night job, he draws his attention to this his day job as it were you know and more power to him if you think about it the stones are really a band that's been doing this for 50 years now with chicago blues yeah, um, they right. just found a thing and they're like hey let's do this thing and they're true to their muse he just happens to have two muses and one of them is jazz and so if someone hears this and they get interested that would be great i don't i can't imagine who that person would be but who knows uh, but yeah i think the the, the biggest sin here is we can't actually hear Charlie doing anything. And as it might as well not have his name on it, but the reason it has his name on it is that's the only way anyone would ever find this. No one will find it for Bernard Fowler or the London Metropolitan Orchestra or for any of the, I think there's four different arrangers of the strings here. No one will find it for those reasons. So yeah, his name's on it for that reason. But it's too bad we couldn't actually hear him play a little bit. I right, it's, it's not a barber is somewhat self-effacing, but but Watts is just literally, as I said, it's this weird thing where one of the most famous musicians in the world disappears entirely in a project, and you just really it does not spotlight him, you know, in terms of the way it's mixed. It does not feature him on solos, and of course he's not a known soloist; he's a, he's known groove maker. But you don't hear or feel or appreciate whatever it is he's doing in that rhythm section it's just kind of buried in the mix it's extremely down the middle max Rochi ain't you know he's not no, trying no. to bring some kind of spin or twist on this i mean it's an all ballads album and so it may be that just anything with a little bit more up-tempo features would, would show a little bit because i mean i really got no sense whatsoever of Charlie Watts as a quote-unquote jazz drummer. I mean, I just it right. literally, I felt like I could have walked in the studio and go, ting, ting, a ting, and I, of course I couldn't. But any basic drummer could go in there and, and play the ride cymbal for 50 minutes or what felt like seven or eight hours. And, and <laughs> God. Um, it's something about the vibrato, man. It just it just reeks to me of utter insincerity. <laughs> but, but anyway, but, but not interesting. It's just, anyway, I did not like this record.
So you're saying it wouldn't have been improved if Buble had been on the vocals? I I don't know that I could. I shit. I it might have been better, and I don't like saying that. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's choose your antichrist. You know who? <laughs> oh no. Again, you know, Buble is pretending to be someone with a very vivid personality. It's kind of a parody of, you know, the balls out 50s lounge singer. And, and this guy, it's just it's it's like the really talented kid from drama club. And they said, you can sing jazz, too. And he's like, I can do it. And he couldn't. Yeah, it's just it doesn't have even that kind of fake uh, personality. It's just and again, I you know, Fowler's, I think, perfectly fine in, in the other roles I've heard him in. He's not driven me crazy with delight but but you know I, I what is the right way to sing a philip glass art song i don't know there is one you know it, fine but but in this context whoo and of course it's hundreds of performances of these songs by vocalists are available so it really is it's a tough road to hoe because these are really obvious choices i mean charlie watts mom had perfectly fine mor taste for the period but there's no you know it's not like cecile mclaurin savant saying now i'm going to sing this rare vaudeville song or something it's it's just it's those songs that you know you've heard a million times before if you listen to this kind of music and it might be a revelation for somebody you know this might be the first time you hear some of these standards if you're a stones fan right that name and you know again i'm with you nothing wrong with that okay I'm Feel better? Now. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I think I'm. I think I'm okay. So we're 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 with Sanex mixer. <laughs> there we go. That's right. Just a couple more of these blue pills and a pink one and a. I I don't know what color the various pills really are. So who's up next? Who's? Uh, it would be uh, Pete. I read that he prefers, uh, he preferred before he died, Sims. La Roca was a nickname he got from yeah, early it, bands. Yeah, right. That he was like in in some uh, Latin bands, and they called him the Rock, and yeah. he took it. And I'm like, <laughs> it's so funny because this guy's career is so odd and truncated. I'm like, dude, mm-hmm. you've established a brand now. I don't care what you think about it. If you want your music, you know, I just it's like he's yeah. trying to make it harder to work. It's like, dude. Well, by Sorry. all accounts, he's kind of a thorny guy. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, he's he's not not without reason. But I mean, for a long time, he was thought to only have the one date, Basra, and his other. He he has two dates, his two leader dates, and the other one, the label relabeled Chick Corea's in order to get more sales. <laughs> Because Chick so kept his same name. That's why, dude. Yeah, and uh, he was like sued a, him, and he won. He right. sued the label and won. I mean, so that tells you a lot about. Well, he, he, he became a lawyer. I mean, so this guy practiced law for many years. So we were talking about Basra. It's it's a Blue Note, I think, masterpiece or near masterpiece. I mean, I every time I listen to this record, I'm like, yeah, it is that fucking good. I think it's a really good session. But yeah, this guy, we've talked about his work before because he is in the group with Art Farmer. And Steve Kuhn, that same rhythm section, and Steve Swallow appears on Art Farmers. Let's see, I want to look this up. Sing Me Softly, The Blues. We talked about that album on episode yeah. 94. 
And so this same group, uh, a couple years later, goes in the studios with Joe Henderson instead of Art Farmer and cuts Basra. And that becomes a legendary, rare Blue Note album. He cuts at the Turkish Bath. Have you heard that album? No, I haven't. I, I got an LP pressing of it, which is just god-awful. But oh, no. The sound of it is is a disaster, whatever version you listen to. But it, it's an amazing group. He's got Korea on keyboards or piano. John Gilmore is a saxophone player. Oh, Jesus. I wow. mean, you know, you, you look at the personnel and think, my God, this can't possibly lose. The music is not as inspired as Basra, but the main problem is, is it just sounds like shit. Hmm. And it's especially unflattering to Pete. So a shame about that. It's just one of those things that in terms of recorded legacy... If your engineer's no good, you're kind of screwed for the most part. And so, and then of course it was reissued in a Korea's name because Korea had a much more thriving career. And then, yeah, he, he released an album called Swing Time under the name Pete Sims much, much later, like the 90s or the 80s. Yeah, I've got that one. Yeah. And, you know, it's fine. I, I yeah, like it good. fine. It's not a mind blower, but it, it's good. But yeah, he had a group for years he called the Swing Time Band. And of course, there too, you feel like if anybody knows you, Pete, it's from Basra, and they don't associate you with quote unquote swing. They associate you with modal jazz. You know, it, it's right. <laughs> so again, it's just like he, for whatever reason, he could not brand himself or associate himself with the one little sliver of, of mind share that he established. So he made his life even harder as a musician, which, you know, I, whatever. I mean, the guy's got a right to do whatever he wants with his life. But you can kind of understand how why it was so hard for this guy to, to get traction. I've already gone on record about Basra as my feeling. What do you think about this particular session? I like it a great deal. And I think following along with the idea of, you know, self-effacement, they can just retitle it the Joe Henderson show. Oh man. Yeah, I is. mean, Jesus, Joe is just fucking on fire on this album. Joe has never, I don't think I've heard a single Joe Henderson album where I was like, eh, that was a waste of time. Right. Like, like all Joe Henderson is really good, but Holy shit. I, I think he's in, extremely fine form here so really this turns into a kind of joe henderson date with just like a world-class rhythm section and they're fantastic oh yeah they're really good but yeah i mean it's it's it is really all about joe i i don't know if i could say that i have a favorite number here i really like Kondu. i don't know if that's how you pronounce that that's sort of a smooth kind of quiet burner I like Basra, the title cut, a great deal. This, all of this stuff, seems very, it sounds very kind of sinuous and vaguely Middle Eastern, but not really, you know. It's got right. this kind of, kind of feel to it. The only number here I don't affect to as strongly is the, is the final number, the Steve Swaller composition, Eider Down. Uh, it's Aww. kind of mid-tempo, major key, peppy, but to me I felt it was kind of light. Yeah, I... I like Lazy Afternoon, which is exactly what the label says it is. 
and Joe plays almost entirely in the upper register of the horn there. It's very mellow piano accompaniment, uh, pizza and brushes the whole time. Very yeah, it's Joe's kind of Getz bag. I mean, he doesn't sound at all like Getz, but it's that feathery tone, and he, he could do that. And he did it more and more in the Verve years. Yeah. Basra has a lengthy drum solo, which is kind of impressive because he managed, uh, in the way he, he travels across the kit, you can hear the rhythm and hints of the melody that came before. So it's almost like he's, he's still, Pete is still playing the song. Right. It's not just, it's not just a drum solo, you know, and now the drummer gets up. He's actually soloing across the kit in a way that reiterates the rhythms and to some degree, the melody of the song, you can still hear it. It's this kind of magical little. Well, the piano and bass are still playing ostinatos behind him. So it's integrated in that, and there is that kind of more or less a one chord percolating thing, and it just somehow because he's not playing really complicated things. It's just no. it's a musical expression, yeah. and because Swallow and and Coon are back there, it just I don't know. It, it, it kind of it is a solo. It works as a solo, but it also the song is not interrupted. There's not that sense right. of and now it's time for the drummer to show off. You know, right. it, it and, just and, kind of keeps the flow going. Joe dropping out there is perfect. I mean, oh it's, yeah, it's, it, it's just it's glorious. So yeah, for me that the two the two numbers I like the best are uh, Kandu and uh, Basra. I, I just I think they're both gorgeous. Malaguena is also a favorite. I think those three really stand out for me. Yeah, this is the Joe Henderson show, and he's he's pulled out the whole bag of tricks here. Overblowing. There's some multiphonics. He, he's just doing everything, and, and he's so. He's so he's so consistently inventive and so lyrically interesting. You know, it's not just pyrotechnics. Henderson has always got the capacity to, you know, embellish the melody or stay in touch with the melody. He's one of those guys who can go in and out, so that when he does get a little stretchy, he always has a way back to, you know, it's always sort of founded back in the in the melody. Yeah, this is a this is a, a gem that deserves to be better known. It's a really, really good album. It's under Sims' leadership, but this is really a Joe Henderson showpiece, tour de force. I'm not sure who all the various composers were. I think he did about half, and then you know Swallow did Eider down. And the way the album is balanced is it be, each side begins, and it's very much a 40-minute two-side Blue Note album. Each side begins with a nine to ten-minute performance, and then ends with two performances that are you know between four and eight minutes or seven minutes so there's a kind of balance that there's a couple real extended but never draggy or or bloated performances and it's all about the simmer right it, 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 that if these musicians weren't in such a great place and everything wasn't firing just perfectly these things would seem boring they'd seem because they're not going anywhere harmonically for the most part it's like one chord often but man they're just so simpicato, 
Joe is just, this is like, you know, this could be, you know, if you give out a business card, you know, his business card could have been this record. This is what I can do. And it just covers, he said, everything. And uh, man, uh, you know, he goes out way further than he ever did in the Verve years later on. But he can play beautifully. I, you know, I, I even like Outer. I like them all. I, I think there's no duds on this record. And boy, they're just, it's, it's again, it's a matter of unity and togetherness and kind of all just having a great day musically, which, you know, these guys never played less than a very high level, but there was this kind of magic. But yeah, if you have not heard Basra, track it down. Yeah, it's a, it's a hidden gem. Yeah, this 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 kind of touches the bases for people who are all all in on Monal or all in on you know a certain era of Blue Note. I think both those constituencies would really like this album. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh, you know it's of the albums we discussed so far. I guess it's the most drummer esque in that there is an extended solo, though again it's it doesn't feel like the rest of the band goes to take a whiskey break and, and the drummer, you know, it's, it, it's part of the musical fabric, but he's still, he's adding, he's not a regressive drummer, but you know, it, this is not, it's, it's the music comes first, not the drummer's ego. I don't think there's any question. It's an example. I think of a good drummer date where he adds some fire. He adds his own commentary, but it's not dominated by trying to spotlight what he's doing individually. And uh, it just comes off brilliantly because of that. Strongly recommended. Yep. And now for an album that does feature (laughs) some drumming. Oh, yeah. Uh, talk about presents. Yeah. So uh, we're going to talk about Billy Joe Jones Showcase. The aptly titled Showcase there you go. on Riverside from 59. Yeah. Philly gets to make a few uh, leader dates. I think probably on the strength of the work in the Miles Davis, the first great quintet, because he, he becomes he becomes legendary in that quintet. And, and he was... If Coltrane's quartet is really a love affair between Coltrane and Elvin Jones, then Miles' first quintet is really a love affair between Miles and Philly Joe. Mm, okay. I don't know if I push it that far, but he's he's crucial, right? You you recommended an article to me, and I, I read it, and it was mostly – I didn't find it very interesting. But there's an account in there that I thought – there's an anecdote that Philly Joe tells in there that – for me, kind of sums up a lot of the first quintet. You know, all those great albums, Relax and Cook and Steam. And right, right. The early prestige, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where Philly Joe, uh, I forget who it was. Someone came came to see him, some famous player whose name's gone out of my head. And it's like, they were having a drink in between sets. He's like, God damn, Philly. I mean, could you just back up a little bit? I mean, you know, geez, this all balls out all the time. And he says, come watch me next week. Come watch me next week with Miles. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll show you what happens when I play quiet so the oh, guy right, comes yeah, back yeah. the next week yeah, and, he, and he starts out on, on brushes and miles in the middle of the numbers turns around I was like what the fuck motherfucker play you know, it's like right. he gets mad for not being the kickstart you know not being the guy who's always kind of driving and pushing to me that's a lot of what those those albums are about you know it's about that kind of energy and and 
Philly brings that. You know, that's kind of his, that's one of his trademarks of his career to me, it seems. Yeah, well, I've had that, you know, and I've pushed this before on the show that to me, the two great quintets, you can trace them back to the Charlie Parker quintet that, that Miles was in, where you had a dominant saxophone player. And so Parker, or Miles was never afraid of having a saxophone player that was technically way advanced from him. You know, he played with Coltrane, he played with Shorter. You had a very interventionist, loud drummer. Max Roach, and of course, he ends up with Philly Joe Jones and Tony Williams, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, a really solid rock of a bass player. And then a pianist who was willing to look at more impressionistic and, and sort of pretty playing as well as the more Bud Powell kind of stuff. And, yeah, he preferred uh, players like that and the keyboard. You know, Bill Evans, Herbie Hancock, Errol Gardner. Or not Errol Gardner. What's the guy's name? Who was his pianist in the first great quintet? Uh, Red Garland. Red Garland. Red Garland. Thank you. Yeah. Not that you know, Red Red listened to both. Uh, he was told to listen to uh, Ahmad Jamal, and you know, to some degree, maybe Errol Gardner as well. So yeah, I, I feel like that dynamic he recreates twice, and it, you can trace those roles in a sense all the way back to you know Parker's great quintet. Anyway, that doesn't really neither here nor there. And yeah, at least one track on this album recreates one of Philly's. Uh, kind of highlight moments with Miles, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, you're talking about minor mode. Well, no, I'm thinking about Gone, uh, where he's oh that the, oh that yeah 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 know, no from the, the Gil Evans arrangement yeah, of Porgy and Bass, right? I, where... got, I got some stuff to say about that. Okay, okay. <laughs> so yeah, I'm a, this this album is kind of a mixed bag for me. It's definitely you know Philly is way the fuck up in the mix. I mean, way the fuck up to <laughs> such an extent that there are some songs I, I feel really bad for Jimmy Garrison who's playing bass here. Oh, he was now, okay. There was a bass player. Never mind. <laughs> there was a bass player. Now, in a couple of songs, I had to get the good headphones. On a couple of songs, you can actually hear him. But if Philly is on snare at all, you can't hear Jimmy Garrison. He's invisible. But if Philly is on brushes, then you can sometimes hear hear Jimmy. Sometimes, sometimes. The rest of the band is Blue Mitchell, who's got to be fairly young uh, on this date, um, on trumpet, and then Julian Priester. More to say about him in a second. Bill Barrett on tenor. Uh, Pepper Adams for some numbers on Bear. And then the pianists, there's two different ones, Charles Coker and Sonny Clark. Sonny Clark's on just a couple of the numbers here. They oh, record- there's a third pianist, right? Oh, there is a third pianist because Philly himself plays piano on one of the songs. Yes, he does. Yeah, so um, let's start with the negative. Uh, was did, did, did Philly Joe and Julian Priester share a heroin dealer? Because I'm kind of wondering what Julian Priester is doing on this date. Most of the songs seem to be taken at a tempo that he is not happy with. They're just a hair too fast for him. And even when he gets the solo, and by the way, the solo order on almost every song is identical. Tenor, trombone, trumpet, (laughs) if the trumpet's available. I mean, it's like tenor, trombone, tenor, trombone. Every goddamn song has the same kind of solo order. I just feel like I like Julian Priester in other settings. And I um, he's on some of the Gil Evans recordings. I think he records with Mingus and some larger groups. But I don't think of him as like a great headline soloer. And I don't think of him as like someone who's comfortable with, with bebop. I don't think of him as someone who should, should be playing this stuff this fast. So I'm wondering... Why is he here? Right. I mean, we talked about him. Julian Priester's album Love, Love on ECM, which is a very spacey uh, kind of rockish album on episode 33. So he really he took a, a sharp left turn later on in his career and explored 
a music that I like a lot, but was not focused on him being, you know, the greatest executant in the world, right? I mean, he just, you know, it was it was more about atmosphere. Yeah, I just feel like all these songs here are just just a little too fast for him. And uh, the worst is Battery Blues, the opener. I, my attention is drawn to him. You know, it's like I, I just don't think he can quite keep up. And then his solo on Joe's debut, I'm I'm like, whoa, whoa, that's. We all need to just slow down a little bit for Julian. I don't know. It's it's a raggedy piece of work, as far as I can tell. Um, the person who seems to thrive here and who's in really good form is Blue Mitchell. is just right up his street and he seems to be having a really good day on this particular date i i, I like him here quite a bit i don't quite know i, I, I don't know who bill Barron is i feel like i probably should but uh he's fine i like some of his solos here quite a bit i miss pepper adams every time they pull him out of the mix because uh, i like the i actually like the pairing of barry with trombone quite a bit um and i'd like it even better if the songs were more at a pace like gone but when they're more up-tempo uh, i have uh, i don't like them quite as quite as much gone is a little weird thing isn't it because let's put it this way this arrangement of that song will not make anyone forget the gil evans version is i mean it, it is but without the crispness it doesn't have the crispness right. it doesn't have yes. the same it doesn't i see what you're the saying same yeah. orchestration the, the gil evans version is which is surprising the gil evans version is much crisper and sharper in its attack almost you know bah, 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 bah. and i'm like yeah you know the gil evans is like tense and sharp and this feels relaxed and chill and that is not the feel that i kind of i guess the other arrangement is just welded into my brain and when i hear this one i'm like is everyone taking quaaludes what's happening it's it's the same arrangement but everyone's just a little relaxed here yeah it's kind of a big band arrangement yeah. and he's got this you know, it's really a little bigger than the average combo. Yeah. So it's not like there's a lot of elaborate harmony writing or counterpoint right. to, to use the multiple horns he has. But he loves it because he goes back. There's a, I think it's on Black Lion. He does an album a little bit later called Mojo. Yeah. 
There's a cast of English musicians on that, and my God, the piano is is borrowed from Sun Ra, and it just the, the album sounds like <laughs> shit. I mean, it's it's bad. I just, I couldn't listen through it. I, I'm not saying the musicians on it were necessarily bad, just the the result, the recording itself is a disaster. And I just the idea that you would play that piano and then say, I know, let's run some recording tape near it. It's just <laughs> why would you do that? You yeah. just want to burn it. Anyway, he very spottily recorded as a leader, even though Philly made hundreds of sessions yeah. as a sideman. Yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about this. You know, Philly, when he's on the snare, my God, you know, Jesus, he, he's got all the he's got everything. Right. He's got right. he's got the fun flams, the paradiddles, the you know, he's, he, can, <laughs> he, he can do it all. You know, and it's like, great. Could you do it at eight instead of 11? It's like he's channeling his inner art Blakey for the longest stretches <laughs> of this. I love it when he goes to the brushes. I love it when he goes to symbols. I like, I like, I like this album better at those moments. And I like the song Julia because we get the usual, you get a tenor solo, trombone solo, Barry solo. We get a long, what, what, sorry, then we get a series of solos, which are trade-offs. And I really like this um, when he does this. He, he he does like four bars, and then the trumpet gets four bars. And then the Barry Sax gets four bars. And then right, he gets yeah. four bars. And I love, I like those exchanges. Those, I, I could have done with a lot more of that. I, I thought those were, those are pretty good moments. So well, that, anytime, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say that article uh, talked about the idea that Jones was one of the great one bar, two bar, four right. bar drummers. Right. And that all the way, you know, this analysis, I have not listened to enough of his playing to weigh in on it, this opinion. But was it, you know, up to a chorus, this guy said Jones is one of the greatest ever. You wouldn't want him to solo past that point. He just wasn't, you know, he built his solos apparently out of drumming fundamentals. And, you know, he's got a musical bent. You know, you can hear him when he's playing piano on that ballad. He's got a bit yeah. of a romantic streak. You know, he's got a soft nougat center there. Yeah. But yeah, it's pretty crispy on the outside, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is pretty crispy. So I, I, I like it. Anytime he goes to brushes or cymbals, it feels like there's more air in the studio. So I could have done with Pepper Adams being on all the songs, Julian Priester soloing, <laughs> soloing never. I, I would have liked this album even more. So it, to me, it's kind of a flawed but interesting album. Uh, I do like it, but it's. I can't. Priester drives me crazy on this album, and I wow, love him. I, just I think didn't he's notice, a great you know, player. He, I, huh, I love him okay. on other stuff, but I, I just feel like one of these people is not huh. playing as fast as everyone else I'll and is struggling. And but yeah, I was, I, we, we just we just talked about J.J. Johnson, you know, and I was thinking, sure, yeah. I'm like, oh my god, you know, that's that's who should be on this stage. I mean, that would be beyond the budget, but I mean, that's who should be playing trombone for this kind of material. Yeah, well, and, you know, this is one of hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands and thousands of sessions from the 40s, 50s, 60s that you get the feeling some musicians were assembled in the studio. Yeah. And, you know, they they made a record, but 
there's not a sense of occasion. There's not a sense of a great deal of pre-planning. There's not a sense of everything came together. I love it when a plan comes together. You know, it's a sense of some guys showed up, you know, they played the charts. They did a really good job. They're all professionals. They played professionally. It's, it's above average maybe, but it's not an album where everything clicks. It's not a Basra. It's not a sense of a unified aesthetic experience it's more you know some stuff cobbled together you know philly loves that feature he had on gone uh let's pull let's that one again out. yeah you, know, and you, gonna, you get the sense that yeah, like you know, know he lives at riverside during this period so five minutes after they finish this he's recording as a backup for pepper adams you know i mean you have the sense that like right yeah. you know that he's you know these are all people he's worked for as a sideman or has worked with alongside of as sidemen and it's like <laughs> someone said okay it's it's uh it's Philly's day. Philly, who do you want? You know, and he's like, right. he kind of, he looks around in the lobby and he's like, hey, get in here, you know. <laughs> but for whatever reason, you know, he, he does not strike you as somebody who had a vision as a leader no. No. that he wanted to express, you know, that he wanted to get out there and say, this is my musical thumbprint. These are my values. I want to put together a, a set of recordings that shows people what Philly cares about. It's like, I'm a good drummer. I've got these interests. You're going to give me a record date because I'm the house drummer at Riverside. He did not have the kind of career, my my understanding is, where you know he was known among musicians as one of the great drummers. But I don't know that he ever had a lot of public name recognition because no. to get that, you need to work more steadily at getting your name out there. You need to oh, make Oh, I've got an anecdote you know. to back that up, which is just extraordinary. So on the on the liner notes to this, you will not believe this when I tell you this, all right? So okay. remember, he played with the with the first quintet through the mid-50s, right? Which is, you know, huge, 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 right? Where do you think he placed among drummers in 1956 in the no Dow Hall? I don't know. 23rd. Oh, shit. I mean, can you actually think, I can't name 22 drummers from 1956. No. Surely he is not the 23rd best drummer in 1956, right? I mean, that just shows you how little name recognition in some circles he had outside of the jazz community. Right. And, and the then readers of course, right. would rank him below. I mean, okay, they're going to rank, you know, Krupa and Reggie, you know, name all the white And that's, you know, that's before Columbia. Because remember, even the working, steaming, all those albums that we now prize on the prestige, those were sessions they cut when they knew he was, Miles was leaving. Those weren't coming out before Miles went to Columbia. Those came out after when prestige is like, and all the publicity that Columbia is stirring up for this guy, it's going to move our units too. (laughs) Now that they've made him famous, we're going to put out all these records that we made him do to get out of our contract. So yeah, probably that early was before, you know, Miles had this big session at, it was one of the jazz festivals. It might've been, um, I I can't think of the name. It's one of the real famous ones. And, you know, that caught the ears of Columbia. And they say, you know, this guy's on the up. Remember, just a few years before, he was kind of struggling with drugs. And, you know, if you listen to those early prestige recordings, you don't think, oh, this guy's going to take over the world. Oh, yeah, no. I hope this guy makes it to Thursday. (laughs) It's like, well, that was uh, that was that happened. But what I read at some point was that, you know, up to roughly 60 those last couple of years of the great quintet you know jones is considered the gold standard for what a jazz drummer is supposed to be right and then along comes elvin jones and the, you know there's that shift and of course later on tony williams and by the mid 60s he's scuffling you know right. and, and of course the other thing we haven't talked about is that jones apparently had a large jones for drugs he just 
and was, a long one. Like his, he's yeah. not one of these guys who kicked it. He, it was an ongoing thing in his career, which makes you, right. how did he sustain a career through, a, you know, this very long term track? Well, you know, you can be a high functioning addict if you're smart and careful. But he must yeah, have been incredibly right, smart. Yeah. You know, he didn't. He didn't end up dead of an overdose. It's kind of amazing. And you know, as I said, he's he's got his facets. You know, if you were going to name a drummer who would love Tad Dameron, yeah. just on the basis of having listened to him, you wouldn't have ever picked Philly Joe Jones. And yet, you know, he organizes his group Dameronia to right. to promote the music of you know, uh, kind of proto-impressionistic romanticist from the bebop era. I mean, a guy that really didn't quite blend in because his muse was so much softer and, and more romantic and gentle. It's bizarre. You know, and of course he got along with uh, Bill Evans, who liked a little to ride the white horse himself a bit. And of course that piano ballad, which is, if I, I don't know that it indicates he's a great pianist, but it shows you that he's got this softer romantic side, which again, you don't associate with somebody who hits the drums that fucking hard. But that's Philly, you know, a, a People loved him. He was apparently hugely charismatic and, you know, very musical and, and just added things to sessions without overpowering them. But, yeah, I, I don't know if on the basis of this or I've never heard Blues for Dracula, one of the great covers. I, you know, supposedly he, you know, imitates Bella Lugosi. Oh, my God. I know. I looked, you know, was was it streaming on uh, Spotify? <laughs> no, they don't have Blues for Dracula. It's like, come on, Spotify, try harder. Make an effort. That's where I'd be likely to listen to that record. I don't think I'm going to track it down and buy it. But yeah, it's he's not. This album is, is interesting. I think it's it's fine. I, Priester did not bother. I'll have to go back and listen to see. I, I guess I just I'm used to trombonists not nailing aside from JJ every note in a bebop solo. So I don't. I, I didn't think much about it one way or another. I like Pepper better. You know, I mean, he's just... Yeah. And actually, I thought Blue, there's like the ballad they play with that long drum solo you mentioned before, The Woman's Name. You know, Blue's like, I, I, I'm not sure he's selling it to me, but again, he may not have seen that melody before he taped it. You know, right. again, <laughs> I, I don't know how much rehearsal went into these sessions. Riverside was not prestige. I mean, they weren't known for just huddling things together, but I think some sessions got more care and curation than others. Thelonious Monk's in the studio. Keep News gives a shit. I don't know that he was as worried about what the result of the Philly Joe Jones session was going to be. Right, right. But I never would listen to an album led by Jones, so thanks, you know, it was interesting. Yeah, Yeah. you know, I'm I'm curious to, I kind of want to hear Blues for Dracula. Just because. <laughs> just once. Yeah, I don't. I, I wouldn't mind hearing it once. I just don't want to buy it ever. So we'll see if those factors can come together. Maybe somebody will stream it for me. Well, any pop matters on your mind? Oh, uh, let's see. What's been on the hopper recently? You tell me what you've been listening to while I look at what I've been listening to, because I don't remember what I've been listening to. Okay, I, I'm trying. I'm going to get there. It's always hard for me to find room for rock, but I'm going to listen to those Buckley albums you sent me. Oh, I yeah. A little bit of one at dinner. Yeah, he's a little too raucous, a little too muppety, and that incarnation to be successful, as you as you mentioned, as he is on Grey. But, you know, I, I, I will 
try to give that a spin. Uh, the album I got through all the way, and literally tonight, because it's not been a great week and a half for pop for me, just in terms of finding time, etc., was Lady Tron's new album, Lady Tron. You do love some Lady Tron. I do. And <laughs> this is more Lady Tron. And it is. And are they doing Lady Tron things? One say they're like, we're the sirens of the apocalypse. And, <laughs> oh, you know, it, it's, God. it is, it's okay. Uh, I think that as they've gotten, as they matured, it's been a long time since their most recent one, Gravity the Seducer, which eventually grew on me that that was one that Brian Eno produced that I felt a little was soft focused. To me, their peak is clearly witching hour. I don't think they've been as good since, but you know, this album may be a grower for me. I, and I like Velsifero or however you say it, Velsifero. The one about going fast is good too. But Witching Hour includes some tracks that are almost like avant-garde noise experiments as mm. did their earlier stuff. And since then, almost every song in a Lady Tron album sounds like a song. <laughs> and I'd say these ones do too. And they, they let the kind of spooky Bulgarian woman sing some things, you know, in her kind of alienated voice. And she gets a little more action than she did. She has on a couple of the earlier albums. So, you know, it's fine. It's good. I, I, I don't know that it, it's certainly not breaking new ground. It didn't startle me. The one thing I'd say that's new is they got a kind of a sparklier sounding synth sound sometimes. It's maybe more eighties and seventies. I don't know. And you know, it's, there's just some fun bits, but uh, they're not funny the way they used to be. And I'm trying to think what this other song title is. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, also, why do they call the album Lady Tron? That's silly. I don't know. I <laughs> try harder, ladies. You can do it. You can do it. Let's see if I can find it. Pitchfork, of course, reviewed the song. Oh, they probably won't have the song listing, though. Shit. Do you have anything to say? I do. So the only thing that I'll mention that doesn't embarrass me publicly. All right, I'll mention the one that embarrasses me publicly. The best of the Doobie Brothers. What can I say? Can't. <laughs> Can't get enough of Michael McDonald's singing falsetto. No, I just started listening to, just put it in the rotation again today, Stevie Ray Vaughan's The Sky is Crying. been a while since i listened to stevie ray and is that posthumous is that one out? i don't know i don't think so i think he's still alive when 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 that one comes out i can check oh, but, okay, uh, okay right my god uh, he's just a phenomenal talent that's the one with the cover of little wing which is as wonderful uh, a cover of that song but he doesn't sing it's just all right um, yeah and uh he does what he does on on the cover there is is brilliant because instead of just flat out shredding constantly he has a kind of cool take on the song and it's just really powerful so that when he finally opens up in the middle of the song he really kind of has you by the throat yeah that one came out in 91 you know he oddly uh, stevie ray is an audiophile favorite I, I i guess because his you know music he had a very small group and i guess the way it was recorded is fairly direct or something i, I don't know but but people love they're like you know luxury issues of all his records which of course were of limited number and i guess it's to do with the fact that it's very simply and clearly recorded or something i mean i, I like his music but it's you know i wouldn't think of him as somebody that people who are purely into the purity of sound would be into but they are 
Sony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Supposedly, uh, another rock guitarist said uh, his version of Little Wing is proof that God exists, and I guess I would have to agree. Good to know. Good to Finally, know. Finally, that, that question's been settled once and for all. When you hear it, you're like, okay. By a white guy with a guitar. I always knew it would be it was him or Johnny Winter was going to prove it. So one, one or the other, yeah. So anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm, I do love this album, and I haven't listened to it in a long time, and I just put it in the mix today, and I was like, oh yeah. It's like one of those where you know you haven't listened to it in a long time, and it's on, and you're doing other stuff, and you sort of stop and go, oh fuck yeah, that's that's as good as I remember. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there you go. Why well, his one single that I just loved as a college kid, and it still remains probably my favorite, is "Couldn't Stand the Weather." Yeah. You know, with that, just it's it's got a little funk in it. You know, the drums are just perfect, and just I I, don't, I love that. And he's he's a good vocalist. I mean, he's, he's okay. He's, I, no, I, no, no, no. For for the idiom, he's good. He's he's. he's I prefer Johnny Winter because if I'm gonna have a white guy singing blues yeah. to me, I want it to be a Muppet. You know, I was like, ah, you know, come on. it's Kermit the Frog telling you about the blues he's got. No, it's not mean, easy being albino. He's come very on. nasal, but he's got all the notes, and he's. he's oh yeah, he's, he's not. He's not. He's just not. He doesn't have the gift of being real expressive. But yeah, he's perfectly fine. I mean, he's he's an adequate singer, right? You know, it just you wouldn't care about him if he couldn't play guitar so well. But yeah, I mean, right. you know, he has those uh, amazing cameos on Let's Dance, the David Bowie album. Uh, yeah, I, there there are some amazing performances there. Incredibly distinctive. I mean, when you hear him playing, yeah, you know it's Stevie, and especially in the blues idiom. Yeah, just man, a handful of easy. notes, and you know, I yeah, mean, it's amazing. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. He only made five or six albums, and then he was gone. So avoid helicopters or. I think it was what? a helicopter or planes. It's some, Something. some small airborne vehicle that didn't do what it was supposed to do. He was going to be dead from drugs, though, eventually anyway, right? I mean, he was... I don't know. I, I, I thought I read somewhere about it. It could be. He may have various. been living quite a lifestyle. Oh, and I looked at that Lady Tron song title. It was Horrorscope. Nice. Yeah, nice. it's like, that's okay, girls. You still have a sense of humor. Thank you. <laughs> And that concludes Jazz Bastard Podcast 164. As always, you can contact us at pat at jazzbastard.com or mike at jazzbastard.com. You can drop us a line on Facebook. Or if you like, look me up on All About Jazz. The podcast can be downloaded from www.jazzbastard.com, from Stitcher, from Mixcloud. It streams on All About Jazz usually a week or two after the episode drops. And of course, it's available on Apple Podcasts. Many thanks to those who've rated us on the podcast service. If you haven't yet and you'd like to, you've still got time. Apple hasn't gone out of business yet. We appreciate any efforts you can make to give us a good word and maybe even five stars. Tune in next time as we discuss four works of fusion, two from the 70s, two much more recent. We'll be including work by Kenner, Philip Upchurch, the Dr. Um Band with Peter Erskine, and Eddie Henderson. Till next time, take care. <laughs>